The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Okay, uh, Beth Torbert, that is her maiden name, is a Canadian singer and songwriter. Maiden name, yeah, we can talk about that. She's also an actress, a poet. She's a breast cancer survivor. We can talk about that because you and I both went through that. That's a club no one wants to join. Uh, she's a vegan. A stand-up comic. A punk. Straight edge punk. Straight edge. What? What's straight edge? I have no idea. We'll ask her. I think it's like it's like healthy punk. Ah, okay. Well, she was a wife. I mean, that got a little complicated, but yeah, she's a wife. Oh, no. Several times, I believe. Uh, activist. Uh, she was adopted. She got a couple of moms. Yeah. There's a whole story there. Yeah. Yeah. Animal lover and owner. And she used to be known as a bisexual. Now she says she's pansexual. So we can talk about that too, which I, I pansexual, that means you... No, you want to sleep with Zamfir, the pan floatist. That's what pansexual means. Everyone <laughs> knows that. Good one. I have to say Torontonian. She's now a Torontonian by way of Vancouver. Yeah. And she's an early riser, which was great when you were in Vancouver and had friends in Toronto, but now she's in Toronto. So we'll have to ask her whether she's still getting up early. Yeah. And now women of ill repute, perhaps the very definition of one, Biff Naked. Lives in interesting times, as do we all. Hi, Biff. Hi, Biff. Beth. Miss, Miss Torbert. <laughs> Hi. Hello. You two are amazing. Thank you so much. I feel like I've known you forever. It's so nice to see your face. I I don't know. I you're younger than me, but I've I've always been aware of you and it's uh, it's wonderful to see you and I didn't know that your real name was Beth, but are, what do we call you? Beth? Biff? You know, it sounds the same. It's a one syllable name that starts with a B. I answer to both. And everyone calls me something different. Like my manager's kids call me Biff, uh, but my manager's kids from his first wife call me Beth. Most of my buddies and my bandmates call me B. Did we leave anything out that we should have inserted in there? That that? Oh my god! If you guys are taught, it sounds like a fictional character. Um, <laughs> yes. It's so funny. I guess so, but I mean, we can say that. I mean, if I were to describe either of you, you know, it would the list would be equally as long and as admirable. I mean, I just think that you know, women do it all, and I think that's the truth. Whether we're dishwashers or recording artists or nurses or full time parents or whatever, I think that women really do it all. I'm so aware of, of your music and your persona and everything, but reading your history, like, holy moly, like Maureen and I think we have mother's issues, but like you were, you had a teenage, you were born to a teenage mom in India and then they abandoned you and then you were adopted and you got two moms and then you know one mom and the other mom was a missionary. Like there's a, there's a few things going on there. Um, I had no, idea how what's it like with two moms well you know it's, it's funny because I didn't meet my birth mom until I was 21 for my 21st birthday my parents flew me to meet her she uh, lived in the area of Collingwood Wasaga Beach and her family is from Ontario they happened to be in India at the time of my birth and her parents worked in a variety of different social justice organizations and charities and their three kids like me, she was a very agreeable, lovely girl in high school and, you know, became pregnant. So luckily, my 
parents, my adoptive parents, were, were working there at the time. They were missionaries to the United Church in Minnesota. And my father was, they weren't actually preachers, but my dad was a dentist and he was responsible for doing the dentistry and dental work of all of uh, missionaries that would pass through the Raleigh area. So they had adopted my older sister. Well, they had uh, taken guardianship of my older sister a year before uh, my mom was volunteering in an ashram. And there was one of the babies was failing to thrive. And so she took that baby girl home and they wound up falling in love, of course, and adopting her. And then uh, they were pegged as suckers, as my father would retell the story. And the church, I guess a colleague perhaps of my biological grandparents, sent them a letter saying there's going to be a baby born in June and the family is looking for adoptive family to take the baby. And my parents just said, my dad always said, if the kid's not ugly, we'll take the kid, you know. But <laughs> and he was a big jokester. But luckily, you know, it it all worked out. And the story to me is very interesting. Maybe perhaps a lot of adoptive stories are the same. My parents didn't want to meet my birth mom. They felt that it would bias them as I grew up. And they would always uh, compare me or, or anything like that. And my birth mom, I guess, you know, she was so young. She was 16 at the time. And I'm sure she didn't have much choice at that point in her life. And so I never, you know, met her, but I dreamt about her as an adolescent, as a kid and as an adolescent. I thought Sophia Loren was my mom because my mother was very, she was loving and lovely um, and gracious, but my parents didn't drink alcohol. They were very, uh, they had a very austere life and that was absolutely 100% not what I was. I was insane and I loved glamour and funny so I was convinced my birth mom would give me more insight into why I thought Sophia Lauren was my mom. And so I finally met her when I was 21. And she did. She was glamorous and out there. Uh, she is hilarious. She's very, <laughs> she's very, very sweet and funny. And her, she had children. Her daughter, my sister, always says to me, you do that just like mom. You, oh, you do that just like mom. And I love hearing that because it's so interesting to me. But there are also so many uh, mannerisms and uh, idiosyncrasies that I have inherited from my mom, mom. So I like being able to discern what is environmental and what is genetic. And, uh, and it's fun. It just is a, a fun and interesting thing. And I, I love, obviously, both, both of them so much. My mom is my mom. Uh, and my birth mom is my mom, too. <laughs> it's just it's just been it's been a, a real blessing. I feel very lucky. You went down, for lack of a better term, you went down a hell of a rabbit hole around that same time, I guess, in your late teens and early 20s and, you know, different environments, uh, sexual assault, drug addiction, just basically everybody's nightmare for their child or for themselves, for that matter. And then you came out of it with all this creativity intact and found a way to express it, found many ways to express it as we covered off in the in the intro. Do you think that one experience, that experience was necessary or a conduit to finding your voice and your, well, let's go with your voice. Um, you know, I never wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be a ballerina. <laughs> Being in, in ballet as a little kid, you know, one of my primary female role models was my ballet teacher. 
And so as a child, that's, you know, kind of what I fantasized for myself. And then as time went on and getting into school plays and, and all of that and going into the fine arts programs, I really wanted to be in acting or theater. It never occurred to me in a million years that I wanted to be a singer. I had no interest in it. I mean, like every other kid on my block, I had piano lessons, but I wasn't really that interested in practicing. You know, I was much more interested in boys. And uh, by the time I was 17, you know, smoking and drinking beer under the hockey bleachers with all my friends, like every other self-respecting prairie kid. And I think that, you know, I got into a band by accident in my first year of university. And, you know, that turned out to be the perfect role for me as a performing artist. It w enabled me to utilize my poetry that I had already been writing, much of it garbage, of course, like every other dramatic girl. But I was able to use it and utilize it as lyrics. And, you know, I got to perform on stage, which was my love of the theater. And, you know, at the time I was an alto, you know, I'm convinced everyone can sing because I could with no lessons. And, you know, the, the style of music that we were doing didn't require me to be an opera singer. And it didn't, it, it didn't demand that I was perfect. You know, I just kind of developed my own way of uh, doing things. And our band moved to Vancouver after flipping a coin in Winnipeg, deciding whether we would go to Toronto or Vancouver, like all our friends. Vancouver was the choice and we went there. And, you know, I was, of course, married. Of course I was when I was 19 to my drummer who was, you know, deliciously handsome and tall. And, you know, he worked for Greenpeace and he was an activist and it was just all the wonderful things that I fell in love with. And of course that went terribly once he got a girlfriend who was younger than me you know if I'm 20 she was like 18 so that was like the worst and I got a new boyfriend in Vancouver and like a lot of people I think in the Pacific Northwest in the 90s you know I can't speak to why but I had never tried any drugs hardly in my life but decided it would be important for my life story that I try heroin. Um, the day after I tried heroin for the first time, I called my mother on the telephone. And I said, Mom, I, I did it. I tried dope. I tried snack. Ha, ha, ha. Or whatever reason I had for telling her that. And she just very typically said, well, Beth, get it out of your system so you can get on with your life. And she meant it. And she was right. And so... I took it to heart for sure, and I, you know, flirted with it and, you know, messed around with it for around half a year. And there was a morning that I woke up and I knew I could never, ever, ever do it again. I just thought, you know, if I do this ever, one more time, I will just absolutely never, ever recover from this. And as difficult as it was, I just never did it again and, and threw myself into my music. And I don't know if it contributed to my music but what it did contribute to was my being very cautious when it came to substances I found that alcohol I always was an easy drunk much to every boy's delight you know one tablespoon of beer and I'm you know then I'm drinking 17 amaretto shooters it just always affected my judgment and I knew that and I just thought you know I can't I can't safely drink any alcohol because as soon as my judgment is impaired in any way, I'm either going to, you know, do drugs again or I'm going to wake up in Italy with married 
or like who knows what I'm going to get myself into. And so for me, it was just really uh, wanting to, to protect myself and to be professional, you know, especially all these gigs that started happening when I was in my band, you know, even before I went turned into a solo artist. I just knew if I wanted to be able to sing every night, I couldn't drink alcohol because once I have a little alcohol, I start talking and telling jokes and laughing and, you know, ultimately I will lose my voice. So for me, it was a combination of wanting to protect myself and wanting to remain professional and protect my my instrument. Straight Edge it was a bit of a sociopolitical movement in a way the kids that were straight edge in punk rock meant that they absolutely did not drink alcohol smoke cigarettes you know do drugs you know and it was very it was almost like a a political choice it was a very very deliberate thing and I really that really resonated with me it was a good fit for me and a lot of my heroes in music were straight edge at that time and and uh, that's why it worked for me you were you were a big deal, like you. Uh, not that you're not now, but 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 you played with a lot of big bands, or at least names that you know me as an old person is familiar with: uh, the Foo Fighters and Green Day and Billy Idol, which goes back like a thousand years. But I was really struck about reading a like now it doesn't seem to be as big a deal. But when you were starting in punk, there weren't very many women, and and now hearing you talk about alcohol and your 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 parents and how you were an easy drunk it all sort of makes sense but but i was really your choice not to drink but i was really struck by you worked the, the a quote of you saying you worked so hard in life to be respected that you were surrounded mostly by dudes that there weren't a lot of women in in punk in those days and that you felt that you had to be twice as good to be you know to be considered half as good you are successful you have done so much but i'm just wondering it was obviously really difficult for you is it is it better now for women it's it's hard to say because I think that, you know, that was basically a reflection of all the societal norms, whether you are, you know, working in a hospital or whether you're sharing a, a rock bill with all these male bands. You know, I think that the same is true for doctors or lawyers or politicians to live in a world that is dominated by uh, the male agenda is... You know, it is what it is, and it is ha- it is our society and the world that we live in. I think for all women, you know, we do fight for respect, and we, yes, we fight for equality in general. So with uh, being in a, in a rock and roll job, I never took it personally that I had to fight for respect or, you know, of my peers. It was a pleasure, really, and it still is now, especially now that I'm getting older, which is a very different thing indeed in rock music. You know, it's it's kind of hilarious. I, I think getting older is very hilarious. And I'm sure everyone can relate to this at any age. You know, when I turned 30, I, I told my mother, I don't feel any different, mom, than, than when I was 25. I, I can't believe it. And she laughed and said, imagine being my age, dear. We all feel like we're 25 inside, all of us. And uh, that was a revelation. That was an epiphany for me. And I thought, oh, okay, that's why all my buddies who are in their 50s still skateboard. You know, and maybe the baby boomers weren't skateboarders, and that's why they're not skateboarding. But all the Generation X guys, you know, are still 
you know, dyeing their hair black and skateboarding and listening to Fishbone. And it's actually very funny to me. And I love having to uh, fight for equality as a woman and now as, a, as an older person, you know, because not only sexism is rampant, but ageism. And I think it's an interesting time that we live in for sure, but it keeps getting interesting. I think that I love getting older. I love being in my 50s. I'm absolutely grateful every single day that not only did I survive what I did, but I keep surviving. All of us do. You know, I think that it's a very special time in the history of the world. I think there's a lot that's going very badly, but it's motivating for people to make things right. And I think that's inspiring. The Women of Ill Repute. Let's, um, because this is a cheerful topic, let's talk about brushes with mortality because we've all, the three of us have all looked the, you know, specter of death in in the eye socket. (laughs) Um, And it changes you. And you've had, not only are you a breast cancer survivor, I don't like the term survivor, but anyway, that's what we are. Or no, I don't victimly, I like even less, but you've also had heart issues and at a young age, I mean, you were diagnosed in your late 30s with uh, with breast cancer, and I wasn't much older. Wendy and I both the same year, and because we do everything together, it's really adorable. But once you've been through that, it changes you, and not and maybe for the better. To what you were just saying earlier, so you are. I'm not so much grateful, but aware that that TikTok, you know, don't waste don't waste the time you have. Oh, absolutely. And congratulations to both of you also. I mean, you know, I think that for me, the education I went through having as a breast cancer patient and becoming a volunteer and a peer support volunteer, I think that if I did not have breast cancer, I would not have come into my volunteering position. So for me, I'm absolutely, I feel absolutely blessed that I did go through the system as a patient. I love having the lived experience of chemotherapy and radiation. And then the 10 years that follow it, that you have residual symptoms that no one can explain or, you know, things that happen and befall women and families who experience cancer of any kind. It's just, for me, it was the best education I could have gotten in life um, because my knowledge that I carry with me, just surrounding the, the medical system in Canada, surrounding many of my experiences with oncology nurses and how they all chose to be in oncology, same with palliative care, I mean, I wouldn't have become a palliative care volunteer had I not been a patient. I tried to sort of reject the has it changed your life thing. And I, like so many people in the system were trying to get me to say, like, I'm a new person. I've realized the value of life. And I was like, screw off. Like I, I knew the value of life before, but it, but it does change you. So I don't know why I rejected it as much as I did. I was particularly struck by you saying that when you first were diagnosed that you were like, ah, okay, I'm going to step back. And the, and you knew that that was a sign that something was wrong. And I too, I had this weird feeling when I, when I was first diagnosed and having to make decisions about 
go this way, go that way. Once those decisions were made, it was like, I don't have to make any decisions. I can just hide out in bed. I don't have to do it. And, and it was really weird having, seeing you express that. And I guess I'm realizing now that my reaction <laughs> to a lot of what happened during the, the breast cancer thing and, and I survived, which makes me this camp versus that camp. Uh, was perhaps not appropriate. So good for you. <laughs> but it is appropriate. But it absolutely is appropriate. You're entitled to that. You are. And you're entitled to it then. And the thing about it is, it is a pressure, not only from society, but from other patients, from the nurses, from our families, even our own self-pressure to be positive and to, and to be grateful. And, you know, and also you know, people who are well-meaning, who, who love us and are around us, they do often make statements like, well, at least you, you have your hair back, or well, at least you survived, or well, and it, it's kind of, even though it's unintended, it can be dismissive. And I mean, I think that I've never met a patient that, that didn't say, you know, shut up. <laughs> anyone telling them to stay positive. Positivity is a key. And it's the truth. You know, we are entitled to our feelings. Positivity is a spectrum, just like anything else. And I think that it affects cancer treatment and the, the therapies that, that come with it affect our brains. They affect us on a cellular level. And we get, we get to feel however we want to feel. And it changes. And it changes every day, and it still changes. As as you were mentioning, even uh, the word survivor, it is it is a pressure. Don't you have that tattoo, survivor? Like we don't see any. Like normally, all the pictures of you, you're all like tatted up, and like way before everybody was getting, you know, the full sleeve and whatever. You were like thirty years ago. You were getting, and but now we don't see any. But on your arm, it says survivor, which I had before I was ever diagnosed. Wow. And for me, Survivor was, you know, was a nod to all the things I had felt I had done. You know, when I got that tattoo, I was very angry. I was incredibly angry at a certain situation in my life. I felt like I had, oh gosh, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to encapsulate it all. It was a response that I had to feeling uh, disenfranchised in many ways, you know, by by men, by the music business, by the romantic partners, whatever the case. And I'm, I love language. I love powerful words. And I thought, you know, no matter how disempowered I can feel from time to time, I mean, we can feel disempowered from so many things, from the bank teller. You know, we can have those days where we just, you know, our vulnerabilities come bubbling to the surface. And they can be from things 10 years ago. That's just that day. You know, that's what a bad day is about. We survive it. And every day, we're not promised anything. But if we have a new day, we get to write how that day goes for us, you know, as much as we can. We get to write how it, we write our own story and we choose how we feel. And, I mean, it's easy to say uh, to any breast cancer patient or any cancer patient or any, you know, stroke survivor, it's easy to say, well, stay positive. That's a tall order sometimes because there are always going to be good days and bad days for every everyone. 
you know, because I'm a, a woman, I'm very biased. So I will always say, especially women, but which is not fair to everybody else. But that's my lived experience. So that's that's what I choose to say. I think that it's I think it's hard being a person. You know, it is hard being a person in this world. And um, every day we, you know, kind of navigate it somewhat successfully and get to the end of the day in our pajamas and finally, you know, get in our bed. It's okay to exhale and go, I'm grateful I made it through. <laughs> That's it. You know, it can be anything. And it's different for everybody. I don't know. I think that cancer for sure is a wake-up call for people, just like a car accident. You know, sometimes it does really force us to look at our lives. You know, my life is is kind of, you know, I guess uh, indescribably um, stressful. You know, there's always a simmering undercurrent of pressure people have. It's exacerbated when we go through something like cancer or even the pandemic. You know, it exacerbated and amplified what is. And so that's, you know, it's a it's an opportunity often for us to take a look at our lives and reprioritize. People ask you a lot about your tattoos because uh, we observed earlier, you had them before everybody else did. And I, I don't have any tattoos. Wendy, do you have any tattoos? Just my breast cancer tattoos. Yeah, the dots. That little blue dot. Oh yeah, the uh, radiation thing. <laughs> they don't, I don't think they really count. <laughs> my daughter does though. I mean, she's obviously younger. Um, and I, I think tattoos are important. When I was a kid growing up, anyone who got a tattoo was like, oh, my God, you might as well go to the downtown east side and, uh, and do heroin like Biff. Briefly, very, very briefly. But but now it's cool. My Well, my son also has tattoos. So he's 24, same age as, as Wendy's daughter. You know, he's a law student, but he's also an English major. And so he has literary quotes. Uh, and every year he, you know, for his birthday, he asks for money to get a new one. <laughs> He's telling a story. Yeah. Is that what is that what started you? Because it's it sounds like you're sort of giving an account of your of your life and experiences printed on your body. Absolutely. You know, I've always been uh yeah, I think that for uh me and my girlfriends, particularly back in our twenties, it was a bit of it was a rebellion for sure, because it was mostly guys or convicts uh that had tattoos or sailors that had tattoos and you know, for us to have tattoos, for sure, was a statement and a rebellion. But I think more than that, it was armor in a way because it, it did it did protect you from people approaching you. It did it was intimidating in a way. Even if you had a, like a little Hello Kitty or a cardinal, like my girlfriend Patsy is cardinals. You know, I think that eventually it came into fashion, and now it's now it's really not considered a big deal. I mean, when I was 24 years old, there were no tattoo artists that would tattoo your face or your hands. And now I see girls on Instagram, they have face tattoos and they have big neck tattoos. And they're very, you know, they're very eloquent speakers and feminine. And and it's just like, wow, we would never get neck tattoos. As much as I always fantasize about having knuckle tattoos, I don't have any you know, and I have no tattoos on my legs. And I mean, we were just shooting the documentary in Mexico and they're all I see is girls with tattoos all over their legs. 
It's so great that it's changed so much. I mean, I remember I had what I thought was a leather skirt, but it was actually vinyl. And I it was great for sliding down the hill. But then all the dye would come off and you could see like imprints of my behind through the skirt. But I thought it was the coolest skirt to wear, not just for sliding, but so cool. And then I was told that it was that it was inappropriate. And that was you know, like, let alone a tattoo, a short skirt made out of fake leather and not because of the butt prints on the back. <laughs> yeah, so there's been a lot of good change that I think people should focus on. Yes, I agree. Biff, what's this documentary in Mexico? Uh, so uh, we shot in Paris in uh, November and the year before we shot a tour that I had done with Buck Cherry across Canada and we're going to be shooting all summer and then we're going to Europe again for concerts and very possibly to India. And so I ha- I am very fortunate that anyone wanted to do a documentary about me. And so uh, my manager of 31 years, Peter, finally accepted a suggestion of a documentary and we are working with a company, well, Electric Panda, and through through our original friends in, in Triton Films, and of course, it, it's just incredible. It's very humbling, and it's and it's not my vision. It's Jennifer Abbott is the director, who is an amazing, incredible, fierce feminist and Buddhist, and uh, you might know Jennifer from the Corporation which was a very famous documentary, I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, to watch her a documentary called The Magnitude of All Things. And she explores the parallels between her sister's breast cancer and losing her sister to climate grief. And it, it, you cannot imagine how meaningful and beautiful this documentary is especially the two of you, I encourage you to watch this and seek it out. And Jennifer Abbott is an award-winning director. And the fact that I had the opportunity to work with this amazing human being, but yes, a female director was imperative uh, for me. And the lens with which she sees the world is phenomenal. You know, having this documentary basically through her lens is it's just incredible. Uh, I feel very, very fortunate to be working with her. Just want to know what the title. Do you have a title? Um, not yet. I think they have a working title, but we're still shooting. We still have a lot to shoot, and I think that yeah, if you keep keep your eyes peeled for it. We are going to be working with Super Channel, but I I think that yeah, we'll be shooting for another year. We will. We absolutely will. I think it's so great because you obviously have a lot to say and your story is so interesting. I just have one more question and it's uh, trivial. Why are you so in love with Kiss? I was trying to like, that's my generation. It was when I was, I don't know, in early high school. And I couldn't even remember their songs like Queen, I remember. but And then I went back and it's all these songs that are, they're so familiar. But you're obsessed with Kiss, I think, or you were. Are you still? And what is it? So my, my husband was a Kiss fanatic. He he loves Kiss. He has loved Kiss since he was five years old. And so when I was still living with him, I wanted to honor that part of his life and his personality and basically encouraged putting all of the Kiss figurines throughout my home. And, and he, he painted this mural on my dining room wall, which was... Uh, 
incredible, actually. It was amazing. But yeah, I love Kiss, like everybody loves Kiss. So that's where that connection comes in. But I can see it because the theatric, the theatricality and, you know, was coupled with catchy rhythms. So, I mean, they're amazing songwriters. They're very underrated and they worked with Desmond Child, uh, of whom I'm a big fan too. So yeah. yeah, it's cool. They're a great band. Yes. Well, Biff, you're, uh, you're really inspiring. Like you really are and so authentic and, and it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And I can say the same for both of you. I am very honored to be on your wonderful show, and I hope we can talk again. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. We'll watch for the documentary, and we have some homework to do. <laughs> yeah, it's been lovely talking to you, Biff. Lovely, lovely to meet you. And uh, nice nails. Ooh, no uh, tattoos, but nice nails. Thank nice you. Nails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll be watching for the documentary and everything else. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. You too. Bye. Take good lovely, care. Lovely Bye. to meet you. Bye. Bye. Oh, we didn't take the picture. <laughs> but we have video, so we can grab, we can do a screen grab. No problem. I had not met Biff before, which is surprising, but her music was never something that was played on the stations that I worked at, so our paths never crossed. She is not at all what I thought she was going to be like. She's quite extraordinary. The music style is one thing, but it's her brain and the way that she thinks about things and the way that, that she survived all of the crap that was thrown at her. This um, is it's kind of unbelievable that she explored things the way that she did and survived. She is a survivor. I just, yeah. I love that. This is exactly, I thought she was going to be, given, given her appearance, and I've heard her interviewed and seen her interview, but given her appearance and given her past, I thought she was going to be a lot tougher. I thought she would have a harder shell. I thought she'd be, I don't know if I thought she'd be belligerent, but I thought she would just be a lot tougher. And instead, she's just this kind, shining, uh, zen-like, honest, down-to-earth, lovely person. So, wow. I asked about the kiss thing at the end, and she said that she's uh, not living with the uh, with uh, the third husband the anymore. Third husband. So, change is obviously a big part of, you know, like she wants life to be better, and because she's been through so much, the idea of change doesn't scare her. So it's yeah, uh, yeah. I th- uh, anyway, I yeah, I think she was kind of inspiring. Yeah, exactly. As as, as almost everybody we talked to, but. She was surprising and inspiring, and uh, we're going to have to watch for this documentary that sounds amazing. They're going, they're going full bore if they're spending a couple of years to do this. No title yet, but we will, uh, we will keep you posted. Um, if you got a tattoo, where would you, where, what would you get? And where would you put it if you had to? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I'm maybe it's because like the breast cancer thing that I'm I'm stuck in a certain way of thinking. Like, yeah, screw you. I don't need cancer to realize I love life. I don't need a tattoo. Um, and yet everybody that I love has a tattoo, a tattoo, and it seems to mean a lot to them. So I I don't know. I I think it's like I don't get manicures. I just can't be bothered going and sitting somewhere for four hours because <laughs> I <I'm> bored. <laughs> That's probably true. I your husband has tattoos. He's got yes. very cool tattoos. He's got he's got tattoos like like Ronan does. He has quotes and and he's and afraid phrases. of needles. Really? So I, I, yeah. So I think somehow people get over that. And and my daughter's tattoos mean a mean a lot to her. But uh, yeah, I have I have no plans. But I no. I probably should get. No, one. no, no. You do whatever you want. Not having a tattoo is a statement. I have a brilliant idea. I'm going to get dolphins done diving in the lower part of my back. 
Cause like a tramp stamp? That'd be oh, really is that cool. what someone's done that before? Okay. Well, never mind. Lovely to see you. <laughs> Lovely to see you, too. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley, with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>